0: Let me pray. God, we thank you for your people. We thank you for your church. We thank you that that even just what we see here on Sunday morning is glorious, but it's only a tiny fraction of what it is you are doing in people's hearts, in our church community, in families, in marriages, in the groups that meet, in the Bible studies that are taking place, in the service projects that are happening. God, we praise you for the way that you use your church in connection with your spirit and through the edification of your word to build your kingdom. We praise you for that. And God, I pray that that's exactly what you would do through our church, that you would build your kingdom in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our community here in Maricopa. Um, We want to see the name of Jesus lifted up high. We want to see Christ glorified. We want to see sinners saved out of suffering and tragedy and a sense of being lost. And we want to see them come to recognize the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would change us. We, we recognize that this happens in little ways over long periods of time because you're faithful and you're relentless And your love is enduring, and we thank you for that. And I pray that even as we look at your word this morning, right now, that you would transform us into the image of Christ. And it's for his sake, for his glory, that we pray all these things. Amen. I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 42. And if you are a guest and you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one of ours. Um, I was even thinking this morning, you know, you come in this room, we, we keep the lights on. We could shut some of them off, I guess. But we keep them on so that you can read your Bible as we teach through the Bible. So uh, if you don't have a Bible and you're a guest with us, we're very glad you're here. And there's that table. We would love for you to take one of um, our Bibles. We're going to read the whole cha- this whole chapter of Genesis uh, 42. Um, but I want to say two things before my sermon starts this morning. First, I want to answer this question for you. Why do we teach like this at Maricopa Springs? Why do we approach God's word this way? You know, many people are used to churches, uh, and and this is not a, a slam on any other churches, it's just an explanation for why we do what we do. Many people are used to churches where you come in and you sit and the lights go down and the service happens and then you kinda go home and they teach through topics that they touch on, things like marriage or finances or stress. And sometimes we do that at Maricopa Springs, sometimes we teach on topics, but mostly we just pick a book of the Bible and we go through it in however long it takes us to do that, teaching what the book says. And you may have noticed that I'm not a very funny guy, my sermons are not very entertaining, I I guess maybe to some degree I apologize for that. But uh, I've just recognized I'm not a humorous guy, and it's not my intention when I get up here to try and entertain you. Our goal at Maricopa Springs, when we gather like this, is to turn our attention to Jesus, it's to worship him, and it's to look at his word so that you, as a follower of Christ, can be well-equipped to do what Christ commanded us to do. So that you can know God's word, understand it, love it, study it, apply it, live by it, live among people who also treasure it. And so the goal is for us to treasure Christ through the word that reveals him to us. And so as a result, when it comes to preaching, what we do is we put our emphasis on scripture. I don't even usually put many verses on the screen because I want you to have one of these. I want, to, I want you to open it. I want you to know where these books are. I want you to engage with it. So my hope is always that, of course, my sermons won't be boring. I don't, want, I don't intentionally try to bore anybody. But, um, but more than entertaining, I, I hope that my sermons will be about Jesus and grounded in God's word. And that they will feed your soul. And that they will encourage you to love him and pursue him. That your heart will delight in God's word. That you won't find this boring because you delight in Christ. So I just want to lay that out because, uh, you know, people come to Maricopa from different places with different church backgrounds. And from time to time, it's good for us to explain these things. If you really want to learn more about sort of my philosophy of preaching, I actually preached a whole sermon on this that you can access through our website or through our podcast. There's no video. It's just audio. It's back from December 30th, 2018, and it's titled Preaching on Preaching. All right, the second thing that I want to uh, lay out for you is I just want to prepare you for what's ahead, okay? It's going to take us the rest of the year to finish the book of Genesis, which if you were around when we went through like 1 John, that's a fast clip, like we're cruising. But if you've been with us through this series, then you might remember that a lot of Genesis has gone very quickly. I mean, we went from creation in chapter 1 very quickly through many generations of human history, many generations of families that came and went. And then we got to Abraham. And even with Abraham, things kind of sped along as we went from Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. Possibly thousands of years, thousands of, hundreds of generations. But now as we've zoomed in on the life of Joseph, it's like we've suddenly dropped out of warp speed. And it's like, just cruising very slowly. And we're going to crawl to the finish of this book and we're going to spend the next couple of months really just exploring probably a few years of Joseph's life. And I'm telling you this because as we complete this book over the next couple of months, you're going to hear one major theme with some sub-themes, but one major theme just hammered again and again and again. And I want you to just be prepared for that. That's intentional. The theme is that God who created everything powerfully rules and reigns over all things. Over the course of human history. Over the events of individual people's lives. He rules over the earth. He is moving all things at his own pace towards the perfect conclusions that he has determined. And he's doing that for this purpose that many people will be saved. Keep that particular thought in mind because it's going to come back in Genesis chapter 50. So hold on for eight weeks. Keep it in your mind. But you might begin to feel as we go through Genesis that I'm repeating myself. That it's like, I think I've heard this before. And that's because Genesis is trying to leave us with one very important lasting impression. See, Genesis began with God creating everything, but then very quickly, man attempted to yank it all out of God's hands to claim it for himself, to do with God's creation what man determined was best, and it appeared as if humanity had wrecked it all. But Genesis is actually building for us a very strong foundation at the outset to remember that God is in control of everything that he made. Nothing is actually messed up as far as the conclusion goes because God is directing everything the way that he intends. Over all of the events that shape the world, all of the actions that shape human history, over and above all of these things, God is actually still in control, and he is actively working to bring about his plan for redemption, which is a message I think that we need to be reminded of again and again and again and again. Even if it's not you who's going through something that causes you to question it right now, there may come a day. And so we want to solidify these things according to God's word. Okay, so now that you're prepared to hear the same things over and over and over again and you know that that's not an accident, then let's read Genesis 42. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And Jacob said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. And you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, "'No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies.' Joseph said to them, "'No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see.' And they said, "'We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more.' But Joseph said to them, "'It is as I said to you, you are spies.' If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. "'And Reuben answered them, "'Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, "'but you did not listen? "'So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. "'They did not know that Joseph understood them, "'for there was an interpreter between them. "'Then he turned away from them and wept. "'And he turned to them and spoke to them. "'And he took Simeon from them "'and bound him before their eyes. "'And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain "'and to replace every man's money in his sack.' And to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. That is the grave. So this chapter begins with a scene shift from Egypt and Joseph back to Canaan, the land where Jacob, Joseph's father, and Joseph's brothers are living, where we are told that there is a famine in the land there, just like it was in Egypt. Canaan, in case you don't already know, is modern-day Israel. And this chapter is the beginning of a bridge between the events of Joseph's life that we've been following as he was in slavery and then prison, and the events of his father's life and his brother's back in Canaan. And since Jacob and his family have been hit hard by the famine that's gripped the land, then he decides to send his sons down to Egypt In order to get some of the grain that Pharaoh had wisely stored up. But notice, he does not send all of his sons. Remember, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And of course, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And Jacob's brother, or Joseph's brother, was Benjamin. And because these sons are his favorite sons, Jacob is fearful and overprotective. He's really infatuated with his remaining son, Benjamin, who shares the same mother as Joseph. Okay, so again, remember, uh, Jacob had two wives and two concubines, and from those four women, he had 12 sons. But of all of those women, he favored most Rachel, who gave him his two favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So when Jacob sends his sons to Egypt, then he refuses to let his youngest son, Benjamin, go with the older ten brothers, and he keeps him home. So the ten brothers, they head to Egypt, they arrive, they're brought before Joseph, who is essentially the king of the land, I mean, he's the prime minister, and they are brought before him to buy grain from him because he's the big boss man. He's the guy you have to go through to get what you need. And Joseph, we're told, immediately recognizes his brothers, those brothers who betrayed him, those brothers who sold him into slavery, those brothers whose hearts toward him intended to kill him. He recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And because Joseph is essentially a king at this point, they bow down before him in an effort to get from him the grain that they need to feed their family. And verse 9 tells us that when they bow down before him, Joseph remembers his dream. He actually had two dreams when he was a young man about his family bowing down to him. That was all the way back in chapter 37 of Genesis. It was an event that took place, we remember from last week, at least 13 years in the past. And yet Joseph remembers. It was a God-given prophetic dream, is what we're now finding out. I mean, we had hints of that even back when it was unfolding. But we're told right now in this chapter that the dream that Joseph had from God 13 years prior has now been fulfilled as he stands like a king in front of his brothers who bow before him. God in his sovereign wisdom, God in his providence, has made all the events of these men over the last 13 years, the 10 brothers and Joseph, all of those events have come together to create the fulfillment of the dream that Joseph was given. Those events include the betrayal by these brothers. It includes Joseph's slavery. It includes his time in prison. It includes even the famine that has taken over the land, not only Egypt, but also all the way up into Canaan. All of these tragedies we now see have become the ingredients through which God brings about this moment where Joseph's dream is fulfilled. All of the hardship over many long years now wrapped neatly into God's plan. But rather than reveal himself to his brothers, instead, Joseph keeps his identity a secret. My guess is they're not expecting to see their brother who was a slave, king of Egypt, and dressed like an Egyptian and speaking Egyptian. And so instead of revealing himself, Joseph accuses these men of being spies. And he leads them to believe that that's going to get them in a whole heap of trouble in Egypt. And so in response, we see the brothers make a really astounding claim about themselves, don't we? Verse 11, they claim that Joseph should be at ease because they are honest men. Now we know this is not true for two reasons, okay? The first is that right here in verse 13, they explain that they are 10 of 12 brothers, but that one of the brothers is just no more. Sort of like when you come downstairs and there's a mess on the floor and you ask your children and they're like, it just showed up. (laughs) No agency was responsible for this outcome. He is just no more, which is far from the truth. Because if they were really honest men, they might take the opportunity to say, actually there was a 12th brother, but we betrayed him and we sold him into slavery and we don't know where he is anymore. But the second reason we know these are not honest men is because Genesis has already given us the backstory. Do you remember all this? Two of these men, Simeon and Levi, lied to a city in order to lead them into circumcision so that they could go in and butcher everybody who lived there. Remember that dishonesty, that deceit? Another one of the men, Reuben, we're told in Genesis chapter 35, slept with his father's concubine. He's an upstanding guy. And then there was the seedy story of Judah, remember that? Where we looked in chapter 38, where he engaged himself in some pretty damning dishonesty. Now Judah happened after Joseph was already removed, so he didn't witness that. But the point is still the same. These men are not, in fact, reputable characters. They are not the kind of men that you know that you can entrust yourself to. And this is important for us to point out because it helps us understand why Joseph behaves the way that he does when he stands with power in front of his brothers. We might wonder why Joseph chooses to take his brothers through the ringer like this, to kind of squeeze them and put some pressure on them instead of just revealing, guys, it's me, your brother. Haven't you missed me? I love you, let's be reunited. The truth is, Joseph has no reason to trust these men and he's been given a task to oversee Egypt, which is a task I think he feels he must complete so he can't go with them back to the land where his father is dwelling. And so he's put in this place because the last time he saw these brothers 13 years ago, they planned to kill him and sell him into slavery. And Joseph has no way of knowing whether the last 13 years led to these men becoming better men than they were the last time he saw them or potentially worse men than the last time he saw them. And Joseph has this deep desire to be reunited at least with his brother Benjamin, but I would guess also his father, Jacob, of course. And if Joseph were to reveal himself No matter how kindly he treated his brothers, no matter how much he tried to persuade them that he has sincerely forgiven them, he has no guarantee that after they leave with their bags full of grain, they will go to their father and speak the truth to him about what they found in Egypt. Joseph could tell them everything that's happened, to be super kind to them, send them home with instructions to get dad and bring him back and we can live here, I'll take care of you but he might never see them again if he lets them go like that. In fact, if you look at verses 21 and 22, you can see that these men are suffering still 13 years later under a guilty conscience. They have not forgot the wrong that they did. They've not even forgot the way that it reflects poorly upon them and makes them guilty of injustice. They have an almost superstitious karma-like fear that their past sin in this moment of difficulty has come back to haunt them. And if Joseph revealed himself, do we really think that these men, his brothers, would go back home, face their father, confess that they never killed their brother, but they sold him into slavery and he's been alive all these years and dad, you missed out. And be forced to deal with the wrong that they did to their brother. I think they would have gone home and never come back. Never said a word about it. Never mentioned it to their father. Taken it with them to the grave. And so Jacob devises this plan that ensures that he's going to be reunited with his brother Benjamin. And possibly even his father as well. And so although Joseph's treatment of his brothers might on the surface appear kind of cruel. What it is is really quite brilliant and shrewd, probably even necessary for him to test these men to understand where their hearts are. And although Joseph's treatment of his brothers is a bit harsh, we actually know from the text that his motivation is to test them and not treat them cruelly because he blesses his brothers as they go. Think about this, okay? He keeps the second-born son, Simeon, but he sends the other nine brothers on their way back home. And in verse 25, he commands that their bags be stuffed to the brim with grain, they be given sufficient provisions for the journey, and that also their money bags be hidden in the grain bags as well. Now this action, I want you to, to see this, is not part of his test. Because it actually gives these men more reason to never return. Do you see that? When they open up the bags and they see the money in there, they think, oh no, now we can never go back. Because if we go back, we will be guilty of being thieves. And yet Joseph wants more than anything for these men to come back and bring with them Benjamin. But he puts the money in their bags anyway knowing that it will actually be an obstacle to their returning, but because his heart towards them is to bless them. His heart is intent on doing them good, even if that means he risks what he desires himself. And so this action shows us much about the heart of Joseph at this point in his life. His heart towards his brothers is not full of spite or vengeance Even if he does not yet trust these men, he still loves them. And he treats them that way. And I think he hopes beyond hope that they will return. Even though he knows that the hostage he's kept is still no guarantee. Why? Because these men have proven themselves in the past to be men who will gladly betray a brother if it turns out better for them. But if they do come back to rescue their brother, then Joseph will know that something has changed. As for Jacob, Joseph's father, he seems to be a a sad case, I think, at this point in his life. In verse 36, notice the way he treats his sons. He blames them for all of the bad things. He says, you have bereaved me of my children. You did this. Even though he doesn't actually know that these men sold his favorite son Joseph into slavery, he still accuses them of bereaving him of his son, his children. And the situation with Simeon isn't even their fault, and yet he's happy to pile that on and place, it, place the blame at their feet as well. This is a bitter accusation. And we don't have a ton of detail at this point, but it would seem that something inside of Jacob kind of snapped when his favorite son went missing, was taken from him. It seems that for the last 13 years, this man has just been turning over in his head grief and pain, causing him to withdraw into bitterness and resentment and fear. He clings to his son Benjamin like an idol and his words and his actions make his soul appear disintegrated, unhealthy, broken. I mean, if you remember the life of Jacob, at one point this man appeared to be almost unstoppable. The amount of adversity that came against him that he wrestled against and prevailed over. The challenges that he came out on top of. But now, as an old man, he seems to have drifted into defeat and despair. We're going to wait to see what becomes of him in future chapters. But now that we have kind of like a summary of what happens here, I want to draw a few principles from the text for us. For starters, remember how we got here? There's a famine in the land. Where did the famine come from? Well, we can say from Pharaoh's dream in chapter 41 that Joseph interpreted that the famine was ordained or decreed by God. God is in control over these weather patterns. He has used the weather as a tool for his purposes. And in this case, he decreed that there would be seven years of plenty to provide sufficiently followed by seven years of famine in order that Joseph's family in Canaan would be touched by that famine and sent to Egypt to find grain in order that they would bow before Joseph just as the dream foretold. So let us never forget that while God created the earth to be a working system, our God is... In control over all of it. The earth is a working system that has predictable outcomes as we observe certain kinds of inputs regarding weather patterns and ecological systems, things like that. But God is in control over all of it and he is actively involved in it. And so I want to point out, I want you to know that there is a, an old false religion that worships the earth. And it's making a strong resurgence in the world today. Uh, Under its old names, it would be something like paganism or maybe even Druidism. But it's now melded with secular materialism to become a, a force in the world. And if you don't like words like paganism and druidism or secular materialism, because you're like, I don't know what those mean, then I'll just give you the phrase that is rampant in our culture, something that's more familiar. The climate change cult is what I am referring to, which is in reality an anti-God religious movement that worships the earth. And as Christians, we deny the religious claims of these zealots, not because we don't care about the earth. The Bible teaches us that the earth is a reflection of the glory of God. And so we do care about creation, but we deny the claims of the climate change zealots because we understand that there is a God who is sovereign over all that he made. And he is superintending everything that he made for his good purposes. Remember back to Genesis chapter 8 verse 22, God made a promise after the flood. When the earth remains, or sorry, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Friends, if you buy into the lies of the climate change zealots, the alarmists Then consider again this verse. God promises while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And Psalm 147 verse 8 says, God covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. God did create a system, but he makes the grass grow on the hills. And I could give you dozens and dozens of other verses that echo these same truths. The point is that the Bible teaches the earth is not some fragile pixie goddess that can only survive if people worship her like she's made out of glass. The earth is the footstool of God's throne, and it is robust enough for him to rest his feet on. It's robust enough to reflect his glory. He made it for his bidding. It does everything he commands. Until the day when he will remake it with fire, it will endure. The earth and the rainstorms and the droughts and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and the fires and the glaciers and the heat waves, these are all servants of God who do his will, serving his purposes. And so what I'm getting at is there's just no need for you to fear because fear is what drives all of this. And you do not need to fear. The earth is doing exactly what God intends for it to do. But where I really want us to go as I move toward closing this morning is just a little bit further reflection on Joseph and a contrast between him and his father, Jacob. I think the picture that we get of Jacob in this chapter is a terribly sad picture. It's tragic. As I already mentioned, I think he appears fearful and bitter. He seems enslaved by a need for self-preservation. He is not a spiritually healthy man at this point in his life. The tragedy and suffering of losing his son... I think in this chapter has turned him into a very tragic figure. Now think about Joseph for a second. He has also experienced deep and tragic loss. He lost his family. He lost his dignity as a slave. He lost his honor when he was falsely accused. He lost years and years of his life. But the tragedy and suffering that Joseph experienced through all of that, it turned him into a glorious man, didn't it? A tender-hearted man who when he sees his brothers wrestling with guilt that still remains for their crime against him, he goes and he weeps. He weeps over the brothers that betrayed him. And then he takes it a step further because he has the opportunity to make their life a living hell. They are in his hands and he sends them away with blessing. Joseph has become a man who trusted the God that he knew was with him. And as a result, the tragedy has turned into something beautiful. And I think the picture of these two men in this chapter presents us with a choice really that I want us to kind of think on. Each of our lives are going to have some really difficult moments. And depending where you are in the timeline, I mean, if you're young, you probably don't even think that's possible. And if you're old, you're like, man, Grady, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been through it. But each of our lives are going to have some really difficult moments, moments that will tempt us towards bitterness or fear or self-preservation. And really the choice that we have to make in those difficult moments when we're going to go that direction or another direction is, do we we trust God? Do we actually believe God? And this is the major theme of Genesis that we've been following really since the beginning, all the way since God first appeared to Abraham and said to Abraham, 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 I want you to go from your father's land to this land that I will lead you. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But it actually goes back even further than that because it goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden when God said, all of this is yours. All you have to do is trust me and not eat of the one thing I have forbidden you. And the story of Genesis is showing us chapter after chapter that God is trustworthy. He can be trusted. In fact, the whole Bible teaches that truth, doesn't it? I mean, if you've read it, then you know God is trustworthy. That's what we are gleaning from the text as we read it. We learn to trust Him and believe Him. God is in control. We are told again and again and again that nothing is outside of His power. No pain is beyond His ability to heal. Do we trust Him in these things? No tragedy is too messy for him to clean up and refurbish into something beautiful. The problem in life is not that God's power is insufficient or his goodness is uncertain. The problem is that we most often fail to, to obey and to trust and to believe. We are weak in our faith. And so we failed to believe in the goodness and power of God. I think Joseph is an example for us in this regard. My parents have this really cool picture uh, that I tried to find my copy of, but I wasn't able to locate it because I wanted to show you it. But uh, they have at least one copy hanging on a wall in their house back in Illinois. And it's a, it's a really incredible picture of me as a 10-year-old baby. I know, incredible picture of me. That sounded terrible. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a 10-month-old baby. And uh, I am flying at least 15 feet in the air in this picture. Like stretched out like a flying squirrel, a beaming smile on my face. And I'm not kidding, I'm, I'm probably 15 feet in the air. And if you are trying to imagine this picture, you're thinking like, what? how does a 10-month-old child end up 15 feet in the air with arms outstretched like a flying squirrel? Where is this going? Well, if you looked at my smiling face in the picture and you followed my eyes to what I was looking at, what you would find below me is my father with his big beefy arms... Stretched up like this, ready to catch me as I fall. And now you understand why I would have a smile on my face. See, the picture is a picture of my dad in his strength, launching me into the air, fully prepared to catch me as I come back down. And it's clear from the grin on my face that I'm not terrified. I'm having the time of my life. I don't have any doubt or fear or concern. I am not bitter that he has cast me away. I am enjoying this moment with my dad who I know loves me. I'm not concerned about self-preservation. In fact, I'm powerless but also totally unconcerned. I'm exactly where my dad intends me to be, flying 15 feet in the air as a 10-month-old baby. And you think I'm exaggerating, but my dad was a tough dude back in the day. My friends, sometimes God launches us away from him into the free fall that feels like pain and hardship it feels sometimes even like being alone. Sometimes it feels like he tosses us away. But the truth is that even in those moments, we can be confident and joyful. Because if we keep our eyes fixed on this God who loves us, then what we will come to understand in time is that the free fall is intended to bring us right back to the arms of our God who loves us. God has not cast us away. In those times, we are right where his goodness and his power placed us. Even Jesus found himself in that free fall. Remember? When he was on the cross... Hanging there to die for your sin, an innocent man. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet the loving arms of his father caught him. And pulled him from the grave. And restored him to life. And this is the lesson that Joseph models for us so beautifully. He trusted in the providence of God. He knew that even as he was in the free fall, that God was working these things out for the good purposes of God's will. He knew that even in those long years of slavery and prison and separation from his family, the hardship and the tragedy, that God had glorious intentions for him. That his life wouldn't end in tragedy, even though it was deeply marked by tragedy. And Joseph believed Choosing not to become bitter or fearful or self-possessed. And I pray that we will be people that are like that. Maybe even so much so that we would get to the point that we would actually enjoy the freefall. I pray that we'll be people who, when we feel like we have been tossed into a tailspin, a terrifying free fall, because life seems out of control, that instead that we would remember that we are exactly where God wants us to be, falling into his strong, saving, loving arms because he cares for us. Let's pray. God, it's hard in the midst of that free fall to give thanks and yet we do give thanks because it allows us to see your strength and your goodness your power your love for us father I pray for anyone in this room this morning who right now feels like they have been cast away from you thrown out into that free fall that tailspin God I pray that you would comfort them and remind them of the truth that you are never far from us that you love us that your arms are strong to save that you are ready to catch us. And God I pray that as we go through these things that we would learn to trust you more that you would cure our unbelief that we would place our confidence in you. And that even in the midst of going through difficult things like this, we would find joy, that we would know peace, that we would rest in you. And I thank you that your word teaches us how these things are true about who you are. Help us believe. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.